ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Dr. Elio Keiko. Elio is an associate principal at the Marketing, Technology, and Innovation Institute. He completed his PhD in marketing at Erasmus University in Rotterdam, and we're talking to him today about research he and his colleagues conducted into grassroots innovation. Elio, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. In other episodes of the podcast, we've discussed innovation with practitioners who work with companies to help them innovate. Their insights draw from their experience, but even drawing on one's entire career, it's it's anecdotal, which is why I was so interested in the paper that you and your colleagues wrote about your research and believe that this conversation is such a good comp- companion to those other conversations, because you've looked at innovation, both as a practitioner in your consulting business, but also through the lens of research. And what you're sharing is supported by empirical data. So first, I'd just like to cover some definitions uh, so that everybody's on the same page. Your study examines grassroots innovation. How is grassroots innovation separate and distinct from crowdsourcing or internal markets? Yeah, perfect question. And indeed, we had the same feeling of we we understood how business did it and we actually did it with companies. We did grassroots innovation initiatives with them and we really wanted to study it empirically, like you're also saying. So we really dived into it and said, okay, what are the elements that make it successful? And indeed, grassroots innovation in itself is defined as more of an open innovation with all employees in the company is voluntary and decentralized. And it's also open to any seniority at any level in the company. So kind of open to anybody that would like to innovate within a company. And that's different from uh, crowdsourcing, for example, where generally when you talk about crowdsourcing is an undefined group of people and often is externals. So Mm -hmm. when you hear crowdsourcing, you hear a lot of, okay, they're working with customers, for example, they're working with other companies. So it's quite a bit beyond just employees. On the other hand, internal markets, that's more uh, business units are given more autonomy and compete with other business units. That's at least definitionally how often internal markets are defined. So we see grassroots innovation as quite distinct from those two and other forms of innovation. So it's almost as if crowdsourcing within the organization, that those are the boundaries, that's the wall. But within that, it's, it's freewheeling and open. Is that fair? Exactly. Exactly. That's pretty fair. And it has its own, let's say, uh, little elements such as being really decentralized and not so it's also distinct from other forms of doing internal uh, crowdsourcing let's say so the way we define it at least this may not have been covered in in the research but headline yes no question is grassroots innovation something that companies should be doing is it more effective than c-suite innovation team in your in crunching the numbers. Is that something that you looked at? So we definitely looked at the companies that we had in our sample that did grassroots innovation versus the ones that didn't. So mm-hmm. we definitely found that the ones that do grassroots innovation are more yeah, are more successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, you cannot then argue that grassroots innovation is better than others. What we've seen also in practice is that the combination is very important. I see. Uh, so you could combine different forms of innovation. We've also seen the way we do grassroots, in at least in the paper and what we study here, it's really grassroots open to anybody. We also so we see more and do more work where we say, okay, we're going to choose a subsample of employees that maybe their normal job is not innovation. So it's also different from, let's say, R&D or like you were saying. Right. Uh, right. But then they focus on a particular topic. Um, okay. So that's to say that you, I think it's an additional 
thing and it has its advantages. So we see that, for example, employees are really much closer to customers often <laughs> than somebody uh, in higher management. Not to say that they cannot innovate, but they're closer to the customer. At the top of the paper, you walk through three psychological drivers that relate to employee self-determination, which are necessary for employees who are innovating. For people who aren't as well-versed in industrial psychology, <laughs> if you were going to give me the elevator ride description of self-determination theory, what would it be? Yeah, in essence, this is relatively kind of straightforward where you say self-determination, so the, the innate need of uh, people is driven by three things. So autonomy, that they can kind of do their own thing, work on their own projects. Uh, competence development, where they feel empowered to actually do it. So for example, they feel like they have the tools and the knowledge to actually do innovation. Uh, and the last one is relatedness, where it's more about how they work with other colleagues, that they create beneficial relationships to work together. Um, so in essence, you can think about it as, okay, I, I, I'm able to work on my own project, so I feel autonomous. I'm able to do it, so I have this competence and I'm able to develop my competencies to build an innovation. And I can work together with others because we all have our own strengths and we can work together well in order to do the innovation. Now, so question, is self-determination important for performance full stop or is it really linked with innovation. So if, if I'm just thinking of employees yeah. in general, is this something that I should be thinking of? No, in fact, self-determination does not originally come necessarily from innovation. So it comes from a myriad of fields. So okay. it's really in, in the self-determination of its innate human needs. Okay. So it really comes from the idea that we have those needs as humans in general, and we can apply it to many, many fields. So it's been applied to like education, and, and we now take it and say, okay, how does that work in innovation? If because we look in the lens of innovation, this is what exactly. it means. I, okay, exactly. I gotcha. So let's dive into those uh, drivers, autonomy. So granting decision-making authority to the employees over their own projects. What does that look like? like what would be an example of that? What does that sound like? What does it look like? Yeah, so definitely that they're allowed, for example, to choose the topics they work on. So depending on, of course, how much autonomy you give them and how broad you allow them to innovate. So you could say, for example, that come up with ideas in any field, in anything you could, or you subdue that a little bit and say you have some domains that you have to work on. Uh, but one of those autonomy giving things is to allow them to work on anything they want. The other is to choose a direction in which the project goes towards. So obviously that depends on how much management says, no, 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 you have to go in this direction versus how much people have the autonomy to go in the direction that they feel is right for the project. Uh, well, and that's, and, and you mentioned in this study that autonomy is not without risks. There are, are downsides potentially yes. you, you've got every, you know, it's grassroots, so it's open to everybody potentially, and they can choose their own topics and choose their own direction. So uh, you highlight sort of two big risks and, and they would be what? Yeah. So one is definitely that, that if you have too much autonomy, you don't align very well with a company strategy. Mm -hmm. So Basically, if you indeed, as you're saying, if you give them uh, the ability to work on anything they want, they might not work on the things that the company is working towards, right. which also means that when it comes down to when the decision comes to management to fund the project, it may also mean that they say, yeah, this might be a great idea, but it doesn't fit perfect with our strategy. Mm -hmm. It does not align with what we aim to do. Right. And so... It it seemed like there was both a strategic misalignment, like they could come up with a product that was strategically misaligned, but also that they could almost do something that was um, like a skunk 
Skunk Works, a great organization. It worked well for them. It helped them personally, but wasn't necessarily great for the organization as a whole. So what were some of the things that a company could do to mitigate the risk of autonomy without losing the benefit? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few things you can do. So for example, you can set up kind of a, a committee that kind of steers the, the projects without necessarily intruding in the project. So kind of giving them direction. So one of the nicest ways to, of course, uh, through leadership and through some KPIs and a clear stage gate process and a very clear process of, okay, what are we aiming to achieve and what steps do you need to go through kind of guide the teams towards a good idea without necessarily stifling their autonomy. So without telling them what to do, just telling them if you want to be aligned with the company strategy, let's be clear about what the company strategy is. Let's be clear about what goals we're trying to achieve uh, so that you can align the project with those. Uh, so we I, don't have this misalignment that you're discussing. Also. So it's sort of a mission. This is the mission critical. This is These are our values. These are our goals. This is our overarching large strategy. But there's a lot of room before you get to that if you're achieving the strategy. Um, exactly. And also you can, they can work together throughout the process. So what we see that is when it works well, we see management that comes in once in a while in the project and gives feedback and gives constructive feedback. So not saying like, no, 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 we believe completely something different, but says like, well, I like what you're doing. I would think that if you want to align with the company strategy, you should maybe think about this. You should maybe think about this while still giving the team the choice of which direction to go to. Right. Well, and competence, our next element. And I thought this was very interesting. And that's about giving the employees the skills they need in order to be effective innovators. And those are specific skills. And so what are the types of things that you've seen in practice companies doing that are really innovative, innovation focused skill set building? Yeah, and in grassroots, actually, e-commerce development is really interesting because if you're saying that it's decentralized and any employee can innovate, you obviously will get employees that their job is nothing to do with innovation or anything related to it. Right. Uh, and that's why when you talk about grassroots, it's even more important than, let's say, in general, when you're innovating to give them this competence development. Mm. Um, and obviously, that works in many ways. So you could think about creativity workshops where you kind of try to make them think like, okay, you've, for example, identified the big problem of customers because you're very close to them because mm. you're, let's say, a frontline employee but you don't know what kind of solutions exist, right? Mm. What kind of great or crazy solutions could you come up with so you don't come up with something very simple? Mm. Uh, you can give them more about, okay, think about the customer more deeply. How do you become more customer-centric? How do you build personas, customer journeys, for example, to, to measure some tools? Yeah. Uh, then while the idea is being developed, you can think about, okay, how do you business model how does right. that work? How does how does a project, how can you think about the financial aspects of a project in the long run? Uh, how can you test the assumptions that you have? So often we work with assumption testing, for example, that's something that's it's also in lean startup kind of methodology where you think about how can I quickly test some assumptions? How can I do some quick tests? Um, and to learn more from the customer or design thinking methodologies, for example, that you've, uh, you must have heard of also. Right. That kind of training really helps and it really especially helps people that may not be a- accustomed Well, it's interesting. So autonomy had potential downsides. Are there any potential downsides to offering people these skills training? Can it backfire? It can backfire if they start following the tools without really thinking about what they're trying to achieve. Um, And Mm. it can backfire if you are also at the same time really uh, measuring, for example, trying to measure what they have learned. So these tools are there to really help them through the process and to help them think about things, but they're not necessarily always there to check, for example, have you learned this? Have you applied it perfectly or not? 
Right. So it's, it, this is not a, there will not be a test. You will not be tested on this. It's more a, a tool for you. It should really be about expanding their skill set rather than another evaluative part of their um, career day, you know, their feedback day or whatever. Exactly. 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 So, so relatedness, which I always think of as the esprit de corps that an employee has with the business, the we speak mindset. Um, first of all, is that, is that right? And then second, in the context of grassroots innovation, if a business has a cohesive related culture, do they need to create extra relatedness for an innovation team? Yeah. So first to answer the first question, indeed, it's really about the we, and you can think about the we with the company as a whole, or you can think about the we with other employees. Mm -hmm. uh, here, we really focus on the second more than the first, but you can, I think both are uh, important um, of kind of, because here you also by yourself, you'll never be able to do it. So what we've seen also in practice is that you have cross-functional teams. So if mm -hmm. you're able to bring people from very different areas in the company together to innovate, then you really achieve success. Otherwise you'll have, for example, someone from marketing or from R&D or from uh, finance that uh, by themselves, or if you have too many people from the same function, for example, they will not work well together. Mm. And that's why you have this kind of relatedness where if they are able to build this beneficial relationships together, they can really succeed. Um, and, and in I terms of doing that, it, it sounded like even something as, as relatively simple as a innovation Slack channel where people are able to freely communicate. Is there, is there more concrete thing? Are there more concrete steps that should be taken? Yeah, definitely. So definitely that's all. I, I think, especially these days, putting people online together and allowing them to also what we do, for example, is marketplaces. And then you can do that virtually or live where you share your idea. And you also say, I have open spots for this kind of knowledge that I need. So oh, to also allow others to give you feedback on your idea, but also allow others to make it easy for them to say like, oh, I have this skill or I have this expertise. I can really help you in your idea. So um, some hand raising that you provide opportunities for that. That's interesting. Exactly. So now uh, the study looked then at these, how these things intersected with leadership style and market orientation and how, how they all related. So first, let's just clarify what we mean by market orientation. What in the context of your study, what did market orientation mean? Market orientation means how close you are to basically the market. Uh, so it's, Basically, if you have processes uh, for generation, dissemination, and respond to market intelligence. So whether you're close to the customers, whether you really uh, look at the customer very commonly, and whether you're closer, let's say, uh, indeed, as to repeat it in a way, whether you're closer to the customer or not. Um, so, so it's depth and wealth of market information, but it also is the dissemination piece. So that if marketing has all this great information, but it doesn't flow into the rest of the organization, is that a market yeah. orientation or not so indeed you're, you're less market oriented in that sense so if you take the three elements of market orientation you would say indeed indeed is generation of uh, intelligence dissemination within the company but also responsiveness so you do actually do something about it ah. um, so you have to take the three elements together to say whether you're market oriented or not i see great very helpful um so hierarchical leadership often gets a, a pretty bad rap uh, yeah. and, and you went into a hypothesis that in a company with a hierarchical leadership, enabling autonomy wouldn't really have an impact, but that wasn't really what you found. 
so if I'm a practitioner kicking off grassroots innovation project in my hierarchical business, what are my do's and don'ts as it relates to these levers of self-determination? Yeah, indeed. We also went with the idea that we said, if you, for example, want to do uh, autonomy, right? If you want to do an autonomous process and you're going to give people autonomy, if you have uh, facility leadership, that will actually be, they will be together much more powerful because you're giving them autonomy, but at the same time, you're kind of supporting them and not uh, doing a hierarchical leadership where it's really more KPIs and stage gates. What we actually find, as you're also saying, is kind of the opposite. We actually found that if you combine autonomy with hierarchical leadership, it's actually a positive effect. Meaning that it actually helps people, even though they have autonomy, to really have KPIs in place, to have a clear stage gate process. So within, as I was mentioning before, within the, the, the autonomy that you give them, you can still steer them in the right direction. Okay. Now, I'm glad you said that again about the KPIs because I had written in my notes that I wanted to <laughs> circle back to KPIs because in the paper... I was a little confused because it says you shouldn't have pre-assigned KPIs, but then later it does talk about structured process, KPIs, and stage gates. So how should we think about KPIs? Uh, well, the idea is that we thought that KPIs would not be effective, but then we found that they are. I um, see. Okay. For sure, we say that you should have KPIs. Okay. Because now, indeed, that was more the hypothesis that you shouldn't, but we find that you should. Okay. Okay. Kind of. but, so the, the hypothesis was like, yeah, you're going to kind of constrain them because you're putting kind of KPIs from the beginning and they don't allow for creativity. But we actually found that they actually work together. So, so having a KPI set up at the top is actually a good idea. Yeah, definitely. As long as, of course, it doesn't constrain uh, creativity too much and it's not very constraining uh, KPIs. Generally, KPIs and more structure and having some reporting towards management really helps you to put together uh, what you want to achieve as an employee and what the company is trying to achieve. Uh, now, because you are a practitioner yourself, so we get the extra, you're not just an academician. When you're talking to clients about structuring these KPIs, what is a KPI that is useful, but not too constraining? What does it look like? So yeah, the way we think about it is not that for every project, you put very strict KPIs on what that project is trying to achieve. But for example, we've had many innovations where we put KPIs on the top that says, this is the amount of revenues this uh, we're looking for in our grassroots innovation process. Mm -hmm. So firms put their objectives up beforehand. So that also leads you to, for example, sometimes being more creative because you think about if, I, my, if my company wants a particular uh, revenue goal and my idea, it's pretty simple in a way, it's very close to what we're already doing. It's an incremental innovation. Then you know you're not going to achieve the kind of revenue goals they want. At the same time, they could also be the opposite, of course, where the KPI is more closer. So it's a smaller amount where it says, okay, what we're looking for is incremental innovations. So in a way, the KPIs that you put are also informing uh, what goals the company is trying to achieve. On the other hand, determinant, uh, not good KPIs, um, are the ones that really tell you like on each stage of the pro project, we want to achieve this and this and this. We want this many ideas to come out of it. We want uh, this many of this type of ideas because then you're constraining what type of ideas come out, which should not be predetermined. I see. Okay. That makes sense. So not every company is pure, purely hierarchical or purely facilitative. So what are the managerial takeaways in terms of how you should be thinking it, it, is it, how should we be thinking about how you manage? Is it purely you set these boundaries? So there's that level of hierarchy. It's been so drilled into us to empower and push down and not really, you know, up the chain hierarchical, which is why your hypotheses were what they were. 
but how, how on the spectrum or did you, how, how does that work? Yeah, indeed. That's also what we claim in the paper that indeed companies do both. And of mm. course, you cannot also not easily say that it's always one versus the other uh, and it always works the same way. So what we see in practice is that they, let's say, hierarchical and facilitated leadership serve different purposes and they can be used in different areas and in different times throughout the process. Um, so, for example, so within the about, whole project, yeah. you could do both, essentially. Exactly, exactly. And do them in the right timing, for example, which is not something we study here, but something that we see in practice. Ah, um, that okay. you could say hierarchical can be very important because you're setting boundaries and you're informing people of uh, what you expect of them. But at the same time, throughout the process, when they're building ideas, you can provide facilitated leadership uh, to help them build their ideas. Um, there's also another paper from two of the authors that are also in this paper, uh, Stefan and uh, Nuno, that talks about giving feedback, for example, throughout an innovation mm. uh, project. And they say, for example, that uh, commonly held beliefs was that you should always either sandwich or give positive um, feedback. What they actually find is that, especially at the beginning, people appreciate constructive feedback, right? Not negative per se, um, meaning that you are pushing them towards the next level. So you are in a way being more hierarchical, but you are pushing them by giving them direct feedback, let's say. Not always praising them and saying, let's move to the next uh, project. While later, for example, in the project, if you give, it's good to give praise because they're kind of coming to an end and you don't want to reopen everything at the end. Right. Um, so there's some nuance to it uh, that of course you need to kind of live it to understand. Right. That makes sense. So when thinking about it and thinking about these, these three drivers, are, are they all equally important? You know, I mean, in terms of the success of innovation, purely seen through the lens of innovation is autonomy. Like if you had to lean into one autonomy is the way to go, or is it really relatedness or guess what? Actually, if you don't have market orientation, you're not going anywhere. I mean, you know, so how, how do we, how do we frame up the value of these things? Are there trade-offs? Are there some that are more important than others? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, of course, we cannot say that one, I mean, it's always the academic answer that we cannot say that one is more important than the other. But what you can say is that one can be pushed more than the other, depending on the type of company you have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if uh, you have a company that's very uh, market-oriented and already has a lot of relatedness, for example, because people do work together a lot, they're used to talking to customers, then you need to push that a lot less versus something else, right? Right. So uh, you could really, you really, you would need to look at your company when you start and see how much do we facilitate any of these, and how much inherently are we actually facilitating these? Uh, so we see that a lot, of course, with companies that are more or less market-oriented. We see that a lot with companies that do give more or less autonomy um, mm. to their people as a general thing, whether, for example, you see, you'd see the kind of the old-school, very R&D-focused companies where you'd say they give very little autonomy. They're very much top-down, right? right? So if you want to change how the company kind of operates and you want to do this really grassroots, you do have to change how you operate. Um, right. Well, I was wondering, though, the market orientation really seemed to be pretty influential in terms of results. Was I misreading those graphs? When I was looking at market orientation, it seemed like that was pretty significant that if you're looking at, gee, we need to innovate, investing in, 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 making sure that your market orientation does not only generate, but disseminate and respond is pretty important for success down the road with all of these things. Is that fair? 
No, that's very fair. That's very much true. So when we look at companies, regardless of, let's say, what's in the paper, the ones that are more market-oriented and really go towards the customer, you see that they have very, they're very successful because we're going more and more towards this customer-centricity idea and that you're closer to the customer, you innovate better. Of course, you have successes on being less customer-oriented, but in general, that's very much true. Uh, wait, tell me, we... wait, there are successes being less customer-oriented? <laughs> well, if you look at, yeah, that's true. I mean, how is that? How is, that? End, yes. is that the bankers are happy, but nobody else is? I mean, what, what would be an example of that? <laughs> I think, yeah, what we see, for example, very high tech companies or very R&D driven companies where you have, let's say, brilliant people in the lab that come out with brilliant things that eventually uh, customers find useful. <laughs> but we also see, obviously, obviously also seen a lot of failures like that because it takes too long, for example, to get to market because they don't think about the customer early enough. Um, right. But of course, you can be successful without it, but it's very, it's much more unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, what we also show here and what we see in practice is that you can drive more market orientation. So for example, by building competences to a company that's not so market oriented, you can actually push market orientation forward because you can basically oh. teach them to be more market oriented. That's interesting. So you just, you, you build that awareness across the company and that will help. That's interesting. Exactly. You build awareness and you build the, the knowledge of how to do it. So for example, with MTI Squared, we work a lot with high tech companies where they say we're as a general, right? Not all of them, of course, but less market oriented. Uh, then we say like, okay, so one of the most important things that you need to do is understand how do you get closer to the customer, right? Mm-hmm. How do your R&D people that maybe they never talk to the customer, how do they start talking to the customer? Or where can you get information within the company, like we were saying before, that maybe there is somewhere, but it's not disseminated throughout the company, right? Right, like all the customer complaints. <laughs> for example. All, that's for example. What I mean, that was one of the, one of the um, uh, anecdotal interviews I, I did with a, a woman who manages innovation was how much she loves customers who complain. And that they're this <laughs> this gold mine of you know that they care enough that they are passionate about it. It really shows what they value, and it's an interesting um, that disseminating that, getting that to the right people, that building those things can then also kickstart some of this other work. So, is there okay. anything else that if I'm a practitioner and I've I've read the paper, what are the big takeaways that I should fold into my thinking? Yeah, so I think it goes back to the three main things that we talked about, the autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And there's many ways to kind of spur those. Um, So the big takeaways would be for autonomy, for example, that you really want to give the opportunity to people to work on their own baby. So you want to give them an opportunity to kind of work on their own projects. Uh, You want to allow them, for example, to assemble their own teams so that to be able to steer the project the way they want it uh, and steer the direction of the project overall. Mm -hmm. But of course, while being aligned with the company strategy. Right. Right. So make sure that that autonomy does not go wild. Let's say that they work on things that you don't believe will succeed or you will not fund after a few months of them working on them. Right. Um, so you put up some bumpers, but let them go within that. Exactly. Exactly. And you can continuously give them feedback. So because you don't know early on where the idea is going. So you continuously kind of work with them to kind of steer them in the right direction while giving them feedback. Um, so that's why we thought it, that would be through facility leadership. But what we mm-hmm. find is that actually through hierarchical leadership, that also works quite well because mm-hmm. they need kind of a, people need, while being autonomous, they need a process to go through that's clear where they started and where they're going. Right, so they're not just flailing around, that actually people also want to have a sense that they are contributing. And, exactly. And so that it's not just pretend it's not going anywhere, but that this is taken seriously and there's some structure to it and that you understand and see um, 
how it fits. So that's really, that's very interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to walk me through the paper and give some context for it. I think it's really interesting stuff. And I love that it has all this empirical data. There will be a link on the podcast show notes to the paper. So thank you for your time. Perfect. Thank you for having me. And, uh, Thank you for the very nice conversation. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.